other uh, household things to consider. Um, you've been given pens, some of you, from the CCC office. As Emily was reminding me here, please return those pens after um, you're done here so that we have them every week because we have bought a lot of pens and they have been missing. So, um, you know, thou shall not steal. Um, so please return the pens here because pens are precious to us. They, we write with them. Okay, anyway. Um, so, um, exactly. So good. So again, have your um, notes ready every week. Make sure you bring um, the folders in front of you. You're going to get new handouts every week. Um, and um, hopefully we'll cover everything. Last time we had the theological cohort, we did not cover everything, but that's okay. And as a rule of thumb, if something is unclear to you, if I'm talking a little bit too fast, if, the, if there are some terms that I've mentioned and you somehow lost yourself in the forest, just raise up your hands and um, we can cover that. Um, I'm completely okay with that. Uh, the many questions that you ask me, the better. Um, it'll help me out because then I'll know where you guys are at, um, whether which things are clear, which things are unclear. Um, but hopefully as we progress, things will become clearer. Um, maybe at times you'll feel like you're drinking from a, a fire hydrant, and that's okay because there's a lot to cover, but just keep uh, with it, and hopefully we'll cover everything. So before we begin everything, um, any questions, uh, logistical or otherwise? We started at 10.15 or 10.20 right now. Hopefully you guys can come a bit more earlier next time so we can start at 10 um, because it is a lot of material to cover. So come earlier next time so we can start at 10. Um, we'll, there will be breaks in between. Okay. Any other questions? Household things? No. So we're good to go. All right. Everybody doing all right? All right. Good. We'll get going. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we consider your word, help us now to do apologetics faithfully. Help us now to consider, Lord God, what the Bible says about unbelief, the mandate to do apologetics. Help us now consider, Lord God, the task that is before us, the weighty task before us of representing you well, of representing the gospel, of being able, Lord God, to uh, communicate your gospel to a world that denies you, a world that suppresses the truth, a world, Lord God, that continues to scorn the very Savior that seeks to save them. So, Father, as we come towards these topics, help us come with a ready heart and remind us, above all, Father, that our tasks in defending the faith is not something up to us. Remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though we were still sinners and continue to sin and grieve him in many ways, Father, you continue to hold us fast. You've died in our place You've sanctified us, you've made us um, ready, and you've made us worthy, Lord God, to sit by you in the heavenly places. And you have indwelled us in the Holy Spirit, Lord God, despite our failures. So clean our hands, clean our conscience, help us be prepared today as we consider how to defend the faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Um, we're going to cover what I call covenantal apologetics um, this first lecture. We'll cover as much of it as possible. And we'll, we're hopefully going to get clear on what apologetics means and what um, covenantal apologetics mean. But before we even um, begin our discussion on covenantal apologetics, we need to consider 
Why do a theological cohort in apologetics at all? What is apologetics anyway? Why should we even think about apologetics? Apologetics, by the way, is not simply um, apologizing. Apologetics is to be distinguished strictly from saying sorry, right? When we apologize to someone, um, when we use that word regularly, in other words, um, we normally refer to it as, you know, you've done something wrong and you're saying sorry about something. This is not how we are um, talking about it. Apologetics come from the Greek word apologia, which means literally to give a defense or to give reasons for something. It is to give reasons for your faith. It is to defend your faith. And apologetics, um, when it is done regularly, and especially in the popular literature and how it is done in the evangelical world more generally, in non-denominationalism more generally, apologetics normally refers to um, defending your faith um, in a way that memorizes, for example, philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Apologetics, if you uh, take a look at it in a popular level, normally refers to um, understanding how to prove God's existence from philosophy or how to prove God's existence from reason alone. So, for example, if you take a look at YouTube and you take a look at debates by, say, theologians like William Lane Craig, even philosophers or popular theologians like Ravi Zacharias, you're going to see them present arguments for the existence of God. So in their perspective, apologetics refers to the pre-theological or pre-biblical task of defending the faith by reason alone. They won't say this outright, but I think functionally this is what's happening. They'll say that apologetics is defending the faith by reason alone. Because the Bible is definitely what is at stake, because the Bible is the point of dispute, the Bible is what you disagree about, you shouldn't appeal to the Bible or get your resources about defending the faith from the Bible. So they'll argue, when we uh, discuss with unbelievers, when we talk about the faith, we shouldn't talk about the Bible just yet, we shouldn't talk about theology just yet, we shouldn't even talk about the particular claims of Christianity just yet. Instead, you should just talk about the existence of God in general first. We don't need to talk about the Incarnation or the Trinity. As long as we can get to the existence of God by philosophy alone or by uh, reason alone and establish that existence first, then we can get to um, the biblical claims about the Trinity, the biblical claims about the Incarnation, and so forth and so on. So if you've taken an undergraduate class on the philosophy of religion, take an undergraduate class on apologetics in a Christian university maybe, um, the common curriculum would be that it's normally, at least, at least when I took it, it the, the class would be divided into five parts. And you don't have to remember this, I'm just um, surveying to you how we're going to be different from, from this approach. The class is normally divided into five parts. They normally say the existence of God is provable by five proofs for God's existence. And they'll, and they'll talk about it. Um, first, normally, they'll talk about how um, God is the first cause of everything. God um, is the first cause of everything. Because everything began to exist, everything that began to exist has a creator, or there was a first cause behind things that began to exist, and God is that first cause. So they'll argue in this way, and they'll spend about um, one-fifth of the course defending that argument. And then they'll maybe talk about um, the argument from design, that the universe has indications of design within it. The universe is fine-tuned, they would say, for life on Earth. And because the universe is fine-tuned for life on Earth, it cannot have been made by pure chance. It cannot have come about by pure evolutionary forces. It cannot have come about by pure nothingness. 
So they'll say that there's a designer if the world indicates signs of design. And they'll talk about the argument from consciousness. They'll say, well, if human beings are conscious, sentient beings, there must be a higher consciousness from which consciousness comes. Or they'll talk about the moral argument for God's existence. And normally, in the last part of the, co the course, they'll talk about the resurrection, the historical proofs that the existence actually uh, 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 happened. Um, they'll talk about how um, the early historians spoke about the resurrection. They'll talk about the empty tomb. So an apologetics course on that sort of level merely refers to, I think, the memorization of particular arguments for God's existence. Um, particular arguments for God's existence that doesn't presuppose the Bible, that doesn't presuppose the claims of faith that are very particular, and doesn't presuppose the claim of the theological particularities of um, the Bible or the Christian faith. They'll say it's a practice purely by reason alone. Um, that, and I want to say that these evidences are useful. These arguments might be useful, but they don't get at the heart of the matter. They don't get that unbelievers are normally not um, unbelievers because of intellectual reasons. Unbelievers are normally unbelievers because of reasons of the heart that lies underneath the intellectual arguments. And if we get to them through merely uh, memorizing intellectual arguments, memorizing arguments by reason alone, we won't get at the root of their unbelief. And more than that, we won't get the biblical reasons of why they don't believe in the first place. If the Bible really is the foundation of knowledge and if the Bible really is the source of wisdom, we need to consider everything that the Bible says about unbelief. Everything that the Bible says about unbelief and the root of unbelief. And we'll see that biblically speaking, no matter how many evidences, this is again emphasized in CCC sermons, no matter how many evidences you've shown them, no matter how many arguments you've erected against them, no matter how persuasive you are philosophically, it is not on the basis of philosophy that they reject the Christian faith. Rather, there's a willful suppression that occurs on the heart level. There's a willful suppression of it, and this willful suppression in the heart level is what controls their reasoning. And unless we attend to what the Bible says but unbelief, we won't get to the heart of the matter. Now, so we're not content, content with, with mere arguments for God's existence in general. We want to argue for the Christian faith in particular, and we want to take into account everything that the Bible says about the Christian faith and everything the Bible says about unbelief as we go into the apologetic task, right? An analogy of this uh, might bring this home a little bit more closely. Um, about a decade or two ago, there was an atheist philosopher named Anthony Flew. He was very famous. Anthony Flew had debated a lot of Christians among his life. He had written whole books against God's existence. Um, he made it his uh, chief task to refuting Christianity and refuting the claims of theism, theism merely the belief in God. And Anthony Flew, at the end of his life, right before he died, had made a public claim that he no longer was an atheist. He no longer was an atheist. He said that um, the claims of uh, people who believe in God was persuasive to him. He said he could no longer have faith to become an atheist. He no longer thinks that atheism is logically um, coherent. And so he believes in some higher divine power, some God out there. But after that, he also said, but he's not yet a Christian. So he believes in a God, 
uh, no longer an atheist, but whether or not it's the Christian God, whether or not it's a Muslim God, whether or not it's a particular God, he's not sure. He just believes in some higher designer out there. And then after that, he passed away. Now, the problem with that, and, and this is, by the way, after decades and decades of, um, doing a, uh, of, of conversing with and debating with Christians who don't appeal to the gospel, who don't appeal to the claims of, of biblical Christianity, but only argue for God in some generic, theistic way without the particular faith of the, of the Bible. What's the problem with that? Anthony Flew became a deist, but not a Christian. A deist just means a belief in some God, a God maybe who designed the world, but whether or not God's involved in the world, that's an open question. Does the atheist and the deist end up in the same place? Yes, right? You don't go to Anthony Flew and say, hey, uh, great for you for believing in God. Um, right? There's, there's no hope for someone who's a theist, a bare theist, um, just as there's no hope for someone who's an atheist. Atheism and, and, and bare theism end up in the same place. Um, we don't cheer for someone who merely believes in God. And in fact, if you go around Jakarta today, right, how many people are actually pure atheists? Very few, right? Most of the people that you meet in Jakarta, especially in um, a very religious society like Jakarta, a very religious context like Asia, most people here, their main issue isn't secularism in the pure sense of the word. Their main issue, rather, is that they believe in some higher divine power. Maybe they can feel it. Maybe they, they believe in some God out there. Um, maybe they even believe that Christian, the Christian faith is attractive in some ways, Islamic faith is attractive in some ways. Um, they're religious and they're, they're, they're spiritual, but they're not particular about their faith, right? Most of the claims that you hear in Asia is not pure out atheism. And we all know that that doesn't help. That doesn't help them. We're in, we all know that we're not satisfied by that. In fact, when you read the Bible, um, when Paul goes around in the book of Acts, he meets theists and he evangelizes to them no less than he would um, someone who doesn't believe in, in the Christian God. He, he, he evangelizes to polytheists, means someone who believes in many gods, and he evangelizes to theists, Jews, who believe in a god, but not the Christian god. So we need to be particular about this, and this is going to be hammered into us more and more. A covenantal apologetics, and we're still in that term, a covenantal apologetics is an apologetics that realizes that Christians have an obligation um, to uphold the covenant that he has with the Lord as he defends the faith. We are not defending bare theism. We're not defending an abstract belief in some abstract deity. We are defending particularly the Christian faith because we have an obligation to defend the Christian faith. Um, someone asked me uh, when, I, when I taught this um, online uh, a few months ago, all right, um, if someone, however, doesn't believe in the Christian faith, how come we can appeal to the Bible um, to defend the beauty of it, right? Now, I've met a lot of people, for example, um, who um, doesn't believe in traditional marriage or doesn't believe in the view of traditional relationships. Uh, now, I'm not married myself, but um, I think that one of the best ways 
to defend the traditional view of marriage or to, to defend the traditional view of relationships is to appeal to the beauty of marriage in itself. We don't come to someone who doesn't believe in marriage and say, okay, since you don't believe in marriage, let me not talk about marriage. And let me just talk in a, in a, in a pre-marriage level um, some things that might get you to think about marriage. No, you can actually appeal to the beauties of the marriage itself, right? To show them the persuasiveness of the beauty of the traditional view of marriage. In other words, precisely because marriage is what is the point of contention, precisely because they disagree about the traditional view of marriage, it is best at that point to describe the traditional view of marriage in its core, in, in, in what it is, for them to be persuaded about it. And in the same way, precisely because the Bible is the point of dispute, precisely because the Christian faith is the point of dispute, we should feel free to defend the Christian faith by appealing to itself and to display the inner coherence of it, the inner beauty of it, the inner logic of it, to show people the persuasiveness of it. So a covenantal apologetic says that Christians are obligated to uphold the covenant that they have with the Lord, even when they defend the faith with the unbeliever. They don't set aside their Christian commitments to become more persuasive to the unbeliever. They don't set aside the Christian commitments to, to become more winsome to the unbeliever. They don't set aside the Christian commitments to look more attractive to the unbeliever, but instead a covenantal apologetic says that we need to stand on explicitly Christian foundations to defend the very faith we're trying to defend. That's going to become clearer, and the, the biblical underpinnings of it will become clearer as we go on. So why apologetics? Well, first of all, the Bible mandates apologetics. Let me, see, let me just take a look at a couple of texts here that talk about how every Christian should be ready to defend the faith. Every Christian should be ready to contend for the faith. Look at what it says in Jude 1.3. It says this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what? Contend for the faith that once for all was delivered to the saints. Notice here that Jude isn't very particular about his commands. He's simply saying, if you are beloved in Christ Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you enjoy, in other words, the common salvation that is written there, I found it necessary to write appealing to you who enjoy this common salvation, no matter who you are, if you're a Christian, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So, every Christian, if you've enjoyed the common salvation, should be ready to contend for that faith. And that faith has a specific content. That faith has been delivered once for all. It's the same message that you have to stand on. It's the same message that you have to defend. There's no tweaking of that message, and you should contend for the faith. And look at 1 Peter 1, uh, 13 to 17, particularly verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, uh, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So notice in these two texts, Jude one three says you should contend for the faith. First Peter three fifteen says, while you honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
you are to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So these two texts proclaim that it is the responsibility of every Christian to be ready to contend for your faith and to be ready to give a reason specifically for the hope that is within you. It's a universal mandate, we might say. Um, It is not merely the task of a specific few people. It is not merely the task of the Christian philosopher. It is not merely the task of the pastors or the Christian theologian. There's something universal about these two texts that says that if you are a Christian, if you enjoy this common salvation, and you have, have, have Christ as your Lord, you have to be ready to give the reason for the hope that is within you. There are a few implications to that, right? Let's think about at least one implication. If it is true that it is the task of every Christian to defend the faith, that means, right, Christian apologetics is not a discipline for the philosopher. Let me put it in in, in another way. You don't need to be an academic specialist to do apologetics. Some people, this is why I'm very critical about these public debates and these public uh, disciplines of, say, apologetics in, 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 a, in a public level, because it gives the impression, even though there might be a place for it, but it gives the impression that doing apologetics or defending the faith is for those who have specialized in it, who have specialized in philosophy, who've read everything about unbelief, who've read the opposing side in an exhaustive way, who've read about the Quran. <laughs> who have read about all the claims of the atheistic uh, beliefs, have read all the skeptical claims of every uh, unbelieving tradition, and have, have, have known their faith so well that they could defend it eloquently, that they could defend it in a way that is um, academically very specialized. In other words, if these two texts are true, it is not the case that you need to be an academic or to have a PhD to do apologetics. Apologetics is not a specialized discipline for an academic intelligentsia. Academics, in other words, um, is not a pre-requirement for you to become an effective apologist. Um, we're not to sequester off the discipline of apologetics to a select few, which would be a kind of functional Roman Catholicism because now we're sequestering off the defense of the faith or the task of the faith to the priestly order of the academia. This is not what the Bible claims. And if it's true then, that's the first implication, and if it's true then that, that, that apologetics is not a discipline to be um, sequestered off for the academic intelligentsia, that means every simple Christian, if you have the Bible, if you know your faith, if you share in the common salvation, actually has sufficient resources to defend their faith well. If it's true that apologetics is not sequestered off for the philosopher or the academic, that means if you know your Bible well, if you are a Christian, every ordinary Christian who enjoys the common salvation should have the resources, sufficient resources, to defend their faith well. So you don't need to memorize the, the, the um, extra-biblical proofs for God's existence for you to be a, a sound Christian. You come away from these debates thinking, Wow, that's a really potent argument about design, but I can't remember 
like six of those facts are the facts of physics they, they talked about to, to argue about the fine-tuning of the universe. I don't remember that. I don't, I don't remember about um, all, all these mathematical laws they just displayed. I don't remember about all, all, all these claims that these atheists are making as I'm watching these things. There's an overwhelming sense of um, incompetency that one might walk away with when they talk about these public debates, when, they, when you view these public debates. But if these two texts are true, and apologetics should be done and ought to be done by every Christian, that means apologetics is not primarily about memorizing the specificities of that kind of um, discussion. Every Christian is well equipped for it. And I didn't mention this here, but you can talk about um, 2 Timothy 3.16 as well, that scripture is sufficient to equip you for every good work. And what I want to hammer on in the next four weeks as well is that if you therefore simply know your Bible, if you simply know all that the Bible says about unbelief, if you simply are um, attuned to your faith um, and you're wise in the Lord, you saturated yourself in Scripture, you saturated yourself with the Christian community, you saturated yourself with the basic means of grace, you can defend the faith in a winsome way. And in fact, you can defend the faith, I would argue even, more effectively, more fruitfully than merely memorizing particular arguments. Any, any questions so far? Everything clear? Am I going too fast? Everything's okay? Good. Um, I think, right? Okay, good. Um, so let me just um, point out three aspects from First Peter 3.15 that, um, that we want to emphasize. And these three aspects come from um, Oliphant's covenantal apologetics as well. The three aspects are, in a, in a faithful covenantal apologetics, is the logos, the ethos, embodying a proper ethos, and a pathos. Let me just define the from 1 Peter 3.15. Um, these three aspects make up, in some ways, um, a faithful covenantal apologetic. First, and perhaps most importantly, is the logos. You want to make sure that you stand on the truth. What you're defending in your Christian faith is actually the Christian faith and not something else. You're faithful to your Lord, even as you communicate this faith to unbelievers. So notice in 1 Peter 3.15, look at what it says. Logos, right, and this is the logos aspect. In your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Right? In other words, don't be unfaithful to Christ as you make the defense. Set apart Christ as holy. Sanctify him in your hearts. And, and that word sanctify just means set him apart. He's special. He's been um, set apart in your life in such a way where you really do acknowledge him as Lord. He's different. He is your, your Lord and your Savior. And therefore, as you make your defense, make sure that it is Christ that you're representing not someone else, not anything else, not a bare theism, but the triune Lord as represented in Jesus Christ. So when you make a defense to anyone for a good reason, you do that in a way that doesn't dishonor him. There are ways of doing apologetics that actually dishonors your God, maybe by watering down the truths of the Christian faith, maybe by being embarrassed about some truths of the Christian faith, Maybe by saying, all right, that part of the Bible, I know how offensive that might be, so maybe that part of the Bible isn't true, uh, to make it more culturally palatable to some people. 
um, about the Christian faith. So there's a way of doing apologetics that sets Christ apart as holy. Now, the second thing we need to emphasize as well is the ethos. How do you walk in your daily life? Notice it says at the second part of verse 15, do it with gentleness and respect. As you represent the faith, as you make a defense for your faith, you need to do it in a way that doesn't um, slander your opponent, that doesn't put your opponent to, um, uh, to, to just unworthy shame, that doesn't just uh, put them down. And you need to do it in gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, right? So that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So in there as well, he talks about a good behavior. So not only do you, should you cr- set apart Christ as Lord, you should also have a life that reflects that. Um, that you don't ha- give the unbeliever an unnecessary reason to be able to um, shame you or to be able to point out aspects about how you are belittling him or, or, or necessarily alienating them because of you being a jerk. And... Um, Notice here as well uh, in the pathos side, so if Logos talks about truth, ethos talks about the ethics of the the defender, um, pathos side is understanding the person that you're talking to. Notice in verse 15 again, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. Right? So you need to understand um, the different kinds of people that might ask you for the reasons of the Christian faith. Um, wisdom simply is that, right? Wisdom is being able to embody the truth in an ethically responsible way um, that is attentive to and attuned to the the different kinds of people that you meet in everyday life. Even though um, we stand on the same truths and we stand on the Bible as we do Christian Christian apologetics, we know that not every person um, comes to the Christian faith um, with the same kind of questions. So we need to do the hard work of unpacking what might be Underneath their questions, um, behind the one who asked the question is a person, right? So there, there might be different questions in every single person. And so we need to discern what it is that they're really asking. What kind of worldviews are they embodying? How are they raised? Why is it that they are emphasizing these questions, not those questions? What kind of issues are they wrestling with? So logos, ethos, and pathos. And I took this from um, Scott Oliphant's Covenantal Apologetics book, which I recommend that you would read. So. That's the first reason of why um, we should do apologetics. First of all, because the Bible mandates it. The Bible commands us to do it. And there are a lot of implications of that, as I've already pointed out. And three aspects come from from 1 Peter itself. The second reason why we should do apologetics is because of the world's questions. Um, Unless you're living under a rock, um, you can take for granted that the world um, won't have the same theological assumptions as you. They'll have perplexing questions to ask and throw at you. They'll have questions that maybe you've never even heard about, right? And secularism, simply, if, if you want to define secularism, it is not necessarily just um, belief in naturalism or belief in atheism. Secularism could be the, the, the pathological insight 
that when you go to the public square, when you go outside of your home, when you go outside of your church, when you go to the public square, you will encounter people in such a way where you would assume that they don't have the same assumptions that you have. You can't take for granted certain things. Um, and if that's the case, the world is asking serious questions that will force you to defend the faith. And if you're not ready to defend the faith, it might even shake um, your worldview, right? Um, this is what normally happens when people first go off to college. Maybe you've raised up in a Christian home. You never heard about particular objections. You go to college and your atheist professor talks about how, um, for example, in biblical scholarship, the book of Isaiah is divided into Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2, and there might be two different authors for the book of Isaiah. What do you do with that? All right. Never mind the book of Isaiah. Um, so there are the world's questions, and, and specifically I also talk about um, gender as gender is merely a social construct, um, with all the many faiths in the world, right? How can you be sure that Christianity is the only way? Isn't it intolerant to believe that? Um, how can you believe that um, other people are actually um, going to be condemned by God if they don't believe in Jesus Christ? How is that reconcilable with your claim that God is love? These are common questions and common, common things that the world is asking. And just as an aside, um, to support my claim again that if the Bible mandates every person, every Christian, sorry, to do apologetics, and if the Bible is sufficient to equip you to do apologetics because that's the case, you're going to find that most of the time when people object to the Christian faith, they're not really objecting to the Christian faith. If you know your Bible well, if you know your theology well, most of the time you can say, well, that has nothing to do with the Christian faith, but let me tell you what the, what, what the Christian actually believes in, right? Uh, most of the time, when people come to you with objections against your God, you can say, that's not the God I believe in. And if you know your theology well, you can be comfortable enough to merely point them out, um, what you're objecting to is not the God of the Christian faith. Um, what you're objecting to is the God of your own making. Um, that hopefully will come clearer as, as we go forward. So not only does the Bible mandate it, not only do we, uh, should we be ready for the world's questions, but we should also do apologetics because we need to ask questions to the world, questions to the world that the world ought to be asking. So we're not merely defensive in our Christian faith, we're also on the offensive in the Christian faith in doing apologetics. We should push the world, push in the public level, push the non-believer, um, to ask questions that they ought to be asking. But they're not asking. Questions that they know they should be asking, but they're not asking even. And do you realize that most of the world are distracting themselves from the very questions that they know haunts them? Why do people spend every weekend getting drunk? Why do people spend every weekend trying to avoid coming home at night to be alone? You know, um, I've mentioned this in a sermon before, but if you read Blaise Pascal um, in his uh, um, Pensis, um, he argued in that little book that the, uh, the king's jester is paid more than um, a lot of other occupations because entertainment is necessary for you to distract yourself from the real questions you ought to be asking. The one thing, he says, that people are most afraid of is to be alone and not in their rooms in silence. 
because in those lonely moments at night in your room in silence, there's a certain hauntingness at the level of your self-consciousness, questions that will always haunt you, that might even keep you awake. What am I here for? Why do I do the things that I do? What is the meaning of all this? Why the evil in the world? Are my beliefs consistent with one another? The one thing that people fear most, you know, why, why is it, for example, did you know that the, the highest paid job in the United States, in most locations in the United States, is the athletic coach? An athletic coach, NFL football. They get paid way more than the president. Did you know that Taylor Swift probably makes more money than most people in public uh, official rankings? Or Calvin Harris? Have you, have you noticed that? Why is it that these entertainers and people who throw balls at one another get paid more than people in the highest rank of public office? Well, that brings to view Pascal's insight. People need entertainment to distract themselves from the very question that they need to be asking. Because if you are alone and there's nothing to distract yourself, if there's no candy crush in your phone to play, that's me, if there's nothing for you to distract yourself away from these um, things that, that, that haunt you, you know that you are necessarily confronted with the questions that force you to ask, what in the world am I here for? So um, this is a term that I'm going to use more and more often. When we do apologetics, in part, what we're trying to do is to bring the believer, I mean, sorry, the unbeliever, to become more epistemologically self-conscious. Epistemologically self-conscious. And that's a, um, that's a fancy term. Epistemological just means um, with regard to the theory of knowing or with regard to knowledge. Epistemology is the study of knowing, the study of knowledge. If you guys have taken TOK, theory of knowledge, right? That's epistemology. Um, we want to make the unbeliever more epistemologically self-conscious. In other words, most of the unbelievers that we meet today are not self-conscious about why they believe what they believe. They're not self-conscious about why they live in the way that they do. They're not self-conscious about whether or not their worldview is consistent. They don't think about the logical consequences of the things that they say. Um, they make certain claims and then they don't think about them. They distract themselves away from the implications of those claims. Um, some simple um, examples of that, right? If you really do believe um, that um, there really is no morality in this world, if you really believe in that claim, that all, all morality is relative, that there is no such thing as a moral absolute, that there's no such thing as right and wrong, we're here to push them to become more epistemologically self-conscious and say, then why do you get angry with another person for cutting in line in front of you? All you can say at that point is, I don't like that you cut in line, but you can't actually say, that's morally wrong, that's ethically not right. Even worse, there's no basis for you then to say that the Holocaust is a more um, atrocious event than almost any other event in human history. Fundamentally speaking, if morality is completely relative, and this is a claim we hear all the time, then there's no 
real standard by which you might adjudicate the differences between the Holocaust and a mother nursing her child. How do you know? How do you make such claims? It's, everything becomes reducible to, I don't like it, but it's kind of irrelevant what you don't like if there's no moral absolutes. All right? And most um, atheists or, or secularists are not self-conscious about these sort of claims. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to say that everything is pure chance, there's no such thing as a moral absolute, but they also want to say, I can live a good life. They also want to say, I have rights, I have human rights. Well, where is rights grounded in? You are fundamentally no different than the atomic particles that make up the table. You're reducible to that. So, so we're trying to make them become a little bit more epistemologically self-conscious. Um, again, a lot of the examples pile on one after another, one after another, right? Um, and, and every worldview has these sort of questions. And so simply, we're, so much of our task is pushing them to think about if you really believe in these things, what are the logical consequences of your belief? If you believe that survival of the fittest is why the world works the way it does, why are you moved by the acts of self-sacrifice? Why are you moved by that? Because everything about self-sacrifice says, if you, especially if you're the stronger, um, is contrary to survival of the fittest. Again, examples can be piled up. So we're pushing people to become more epistemologically self-conscious. Um, and now that you know what that means, I'm gonna use that term more freely, okay? So some pre preliminary terms and observations. We're gonna take a break in about 10, how are you guys doing by the way? Do we need a break? Some people are saying yes, some people are saying no. Oh, two questions? You need some handouts? Uh, there are some handouts there. Okay. All right. Let, let me just um, move on real quick for like five minutes and then we'll take a break. Okay, let me just define a couple of things here. So, if that's why we do apologetics, and I've given you three reasons why we should do apologetics, um, and we have to do it in a way that is biblically faithful, we stand in a covenant with the Lord, we cannot break that covenant as we are defending the faith to the unbeliever. Let me talk about some um, theological uh, um, facets of the Bible that are relevant particularly to the practice of apologetics. And before we get into Genesis 2 and 3 um, and, and discuss um, some aspects from those texts, let me just define um, general and special revelation. Now, covenant might be defined as you've seen in your text there, in one way, it could be defined as this. As the covenant obligation, or the covenantal obligation, to interpret God's world in light of God's word. It is the covenantal obligation to interpret God's world through the word of God. And we're going to see this interplay in Genesis 2 and 3. How in Genesis 2, humanity is commanded to interpret all of reality in light of the word of God. We're going to see that come to bear. And how in the fall, in Genesis 3, the fundamental um, feature that we want to point out in the fall is that humanity has refused and has broken the link between God's word and God's world. In other words, one of the ways we can talk about the fall is that humanity has said, I will refuse God's interpretation of reality 
and I will think for myself and make for myself my own interpretation of the world. In other words, a facet of the fall is, your, is, is a refusal to think God's thoughts after him. It's a refusal to look at the world in light of God's word. It's a refusal, in other words, to see general revelation in light of special revelation. Let me just define that. Right? General revelation. General revelation is spoken of in, in texts like Romans chapter 1, in texts like Psalm 19, where it says that all of creation uh, sings of God's existence, sings of God's glory, all of creation from before the foundation of the world, I mean from, from creation's starting point until now, continues to reveal God's existence. There is a nonverbal revelation. There is, in other words, a revelational pressure that um, creation impinges upon you um, in every waking moment, um, Herman Bobbing and Van Til would say, as in every waking moment, you are confronted with the reality of God's existence and also the reality of God's demands upon you. This is why you have a guilty conscience. This is why you have, um, or, or, or a clean conscience, because you realize that, that God is pleased with you or not pleased with you, right? This is why you feel a kind of obligation every time you walk around in this world. You feel God's existence and you feel his um, demands upon your life. That's general revelation. God's world, in other words, always reveals the creator to you. There is no facet of reality where you can say that God is not clear. So, and as we're gonna see next week, there's no such thing as an atheist. No one is a real atheist. That's a bold claim, I know. We're defending next week. Atheism doesn't exist, biblically speaking. So that's general revelation. It's a nonverbal revelation that is always present at every moment. God reveals himself to every person at every moment. We're going to take a look at the texts, especially next week. Special revelation is more particular. Special revelation is God's specific revelation of himself in terms of words, in terms of um, covenant, in terms of what theologians say, theophany, when God walks with Adam and Eve and speaks to them. God condescends in a more specific level and talks to you in human language, um, creates promises, and of course, the, the most specific part of special revelation is the incarnation himself, right? Jesus Christ as the locus of God's special revelation in a way that is climactic. And in this time of redemptive history, special revelation is primarily found in the word of God, the Bible, the finished canon, the word of Christ himself in scripture. So there's a covenant obligation for the Christian to think God's thoughts after him, and that means to read God's world, which is nonverbal. There's, it's not linguistically um, primal, right? It's not linguistically uh, uh, constituted, right? The world is, is nonverbal. It reveals God's, it, it, it creates a revelational pressure on you that's not linguistic, not verbal. There is an obligation 
to read God's world, which is not verbal, in terms of God's verbal revelation in Christ and in Scripture. Okay? Those are the two definitions we want to keep in mind as we go forward. Let's take a five-minute break. <laughs>